Hosea chapter 6 and verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam transgressed the covenant, there they deal faith, dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evil, uh, evildoers tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil, and their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue all night. Their anger smolders in the morning. It blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him. And he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them! For they have strayed from me, destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Lo, I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward, not to the Lord." They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence uh, of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Amen. I mean, O God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. Proverbs 13 and verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that's uh, an emotion, I think, that all of us can readily identify with. We have studied uh, for our exams in anticipation of applying to a course at university, and we don't get the results, and the course is denied. 
disappointed hopes. Or we uh, pay for a holiday that we were dreaming and dreaming of those sun-drenched beaches and comes, along comes the long-anticipated fortnight and it pours uh, from one day to the next. We apply for a job only to discover uh, that a job that we are, think we are qualified for and suited for, we, we don't get disappointed. Hope deferred is something that we have to learn to cope with. It's in the very nature of human beings to actively look forward to the future, to become emotionally engaged in its unrealized possibilities. We are creatures of hope from that day, first day in childhood, we received the Advent calendar and learned to count down the days to Christmas. And uh, that's why being so disappointed is a form of suffering that we are also inevitably vulnerable to. Now, you might think that is one of our experiences that God cannot identify with. Since God is omniscient, He sees the future with absolute clarity. And since God is omnipotent, He controls the future with absolute certainty. He can never be disappointed. It's only as Rabbi Burns says, mice and men whose best-led schemes go askew, leaving us with nights of grief and pain instead of the promised joy that experience disappointment. But this chapter of Hosea tells us that God can be disappointed, disappointed with His people and in their response to Him. And that note of disappointment is repeated throughout the passage. Look at chapter 6 and verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? I remember there are two nations, northern Israel and Judah, ten tribes in the north. Ephraim is the um, uh, dominant tribe of, of, of Israel, and sometimes that uh, term is used to include all of Israel. So Israel is Ephraim, and then you have Judah in the south. What will I do with you, O Israel? What shall I do with you, O Judah? I guess all of us who are parents have sometimes wrung our hands and said something like that. I don't know what to do with you. I'm at my wit's end, trying to cope. Well, Hosea pictures God in a similar state of exasperation. Try as he would, nothing he did seemed to produce in Israel the kind of spiritual response that he was looking for. God found himself feeling disappointed with Israel's intransigence. Look at the beginning of chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of northern Israel. Do you see once again that note of divine disappointment? Whenever I want to be merciful, more sin is discovered. I came in grace to restore my wayward people, and when I'm ready to forgive them, other sin is uncovered. She is in a continual state of disappointment. She's a continual source of disappointment to me. Look at the end of verse 13 of chapter 7. God says, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. The NIV translates that I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. 
You hear the disappointment in those words. I long to redeem, to buy them back from that self-inflicted bondage that Israel placed herself in. But instead of the heartfelt prayers of the penitent, what do I get? I get lies. That's what I get. I get lies. Israel is incorrigible. No matter what I do, they resist me. I would redeem them, but who would have ever thought there would have been a but in the heart of God? You see, the God of the Bible is so big, he will never be reduced to helplessness, but that does not mean he's too big never to be reduced to tears. The God of the Bible can never be resisted, but that does not mean that he can never be disappointed. Like Hosea, God knew the pangs of disappointment and frustration in the face of an unrequited love. So, what we want to do this morning is we want to look at God's disappointment with Israel and ask ourselves the simple question, is God disappointed with me? Now, the passage, in the passage, Hosea um, employs six illustrations that reveal God's disappointment with his people. In chapter 6 and verse 4, we have a morning cloud or dew. In chapter 7, verses 4 and 6, we have a hot oven. In verse 8 of chapter 7, uh, we have a flat cake that's not turned. In verse 9, of chapter 7, we have the advancement of old age. In verse 11 of chapter 7, we have a brainless bird. And in verse 16 of chapter 7, we have a faulty weapon. So, let's go through these illustrations, uh, examining God's diagnosis of the spiritual condition of Israel that gave rise to His disappointment with Israel. So, first of all, notice Israel responded superficially. Look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes early away. Now, you remember in our last study in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, Hosea issues this invitation to the people of God, to the nation of God, to return. Come, let us return to the Lord. Verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. There's this gracious, this wonderful, this open invitation inviting the people to return to God. And it seems the people at least initially did respond. They did return. They did press on to know the Lord. But it was all very short-lived. It was all very superficial. It was little more than a five-minute wonder, a, a morning cloud, a morning mist that was away by lunchtime, dew that disappeared with the rising of the sun. You see, God would, uh, as we discovered in our last study, uh, discipline his people. And he did discipline his people. His people did return, but all that repentance and remorse was short-lived. It was a religious revival. It was spiritual renewal. It was professed repentance, but it disappeared with the Jew. Disappeared with the Jew. It was short-lived. 
And God comes to them and he says, when I rebuke you, when I discipline you, when I call you to repentance, your repentance is is like a morning mist, a morning cloud, the early morning dew. I put my finger on some particular sin, some uh, thing that displeases me. And, uh, and you, you confess it, you uh, own it, but it's all gone. Uh, a minute later, it goes, you go up like a, a rocket and you come down like a stick. And how true that is, is of, is of, is of us. We come to church and we enjoy the tedium, endure the tedium of 35 minutes of Bible exposition we break bread, and there's no sense of God in it. There's no love to God in it. We renew our commitment to Him. But time and time again, we just go back to our old ways and back to our old past. Look at verse uh, 6 of chapter 6. For I desire steadfast love. Steadfast love. That's the word hesed, sticky love. I desire commitment and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's the intimacy that I want, not short-lived repentance. Secondly, Israel uh, uh, lived inconsistently. God's disappointment and frustration over Israel was exasperated by her moral corruption. These two chapters have much to say about the moral decadence, but the illustration that Hosea uses is that of a hot oven. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it uh, is leavened. They were uh, uh, adulterers. They had forsaken the um, uh, Lord their God, the covenant God, for the sake of Baal, this illicit lover that they pursued. And it was all um, immoral. There was uh, immoral practices tied up with that religion. It was all so pagan. There was temple prostitution. There was all kinds of uh, immoral practices to stir the affections uh, of the people. And they, the people themselves were like hot ovens, always on the boil, always craving after these uh, immoral experiences. Look at verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. You remember the uh, frenzied devotion of the worshippers of Baal a hundred years earlier uh, under Elijah when they were slashing themselves and cutting themselves in devotion to their God as they called upon him. All of this, all of this frenzied, uh, immoral uh, behavior was bubbling in the hearts of the people. They were like pots on the boil all the time. But it wasn't just sexually and uh, in a pagan way that they were pots on the boil. Look at verses 5 to 7. On the day of our king, that's probably the day of coronation. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers for their hearts like an oven. They approached their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In a morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. And they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen. And none of them calls upon me. 
Here the princes, the politicians are, are pictured as, as uh, hot ovens full of political inqu- uh, intrigue. This was a, a time of great s- political instability in Israel. King after king was assassinated as one conspirator after another hacked his way to the throne. Of the six kings that reigned, only one died in his bed. And all of this was cooked up by the princes, the politicians. They too were on the boil, hot ovens, uh, unbridled passions. But not only the people were seduced uh, 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 by this religion, not only were the princes these hot ovens, uh, but the, the princes, uh, the priests as well. Uh, look, look at chapter 6. And uh, and verse 8, Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. The NIV says, marked by the footprints of blood. It was a violent society. As robbers lie in wait for a, a, a man. So the priests, the priests, band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. So it's not only the, the priests It's not only the politicians and the people, it's actually the the priests are these hot ovens boiling over and and committing all kinds of of crimes. And look at what God says in verse 2, but they do not consider that I remember their evil, neither deeds surround them, they are before my face. God, God didn't turn a blind eye to this, these uh, unbridled passions, these hot ovens plotting uh, immorality, political intrigue, and even murder in the priesthood. God wasn't blind to that. Look at what he says in verse 10. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. A horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. These were the professing people of God, the people of God's choice, of God's grace, the objects of His grace. And they were like like hot ovens boiling with unbridled passions, morally and politically and even ecclesiastically in the priesthood. What about you? When God looks at your heart, does he see a pot on the boil? Does he see an oven that's overheated, that you're controlled and dominated and ruled by unbridled passions? And there's this great inconsistency between what you profess to be on the outside and actually what you are like on the inside and what you are like in practice. A pot on the boil. Israel responded superficially. She lived inconsistently. She followed half-heartedly. We've had the morning cloud. We've had the hot oven. The third illustration that Hosea uses is the half-done pancake or the unturned flat cake. Look at verse 8 of of chapter 7. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. The third picture is of a, an inedible cake, a cake that is laid on the griddle, 
but it's never turned and it's well done, golden brown on one side, then, then it's served and when you bite into it, it's raw on the other. Now that describes Israel's loyalty to God. She was half committed to him. She hadn't abandoned him completely, nor was she following him wholeheartedly. Verse 8 again, Ephraim mixes herself with the peoples. That's a culinary word. It's a word that's used for mixing ingredients. uh, The ingredients being mixed together. So Israel had mixed with the godless pagan uh, nations around her. She had not given herself to Yahweh completely. Sure, she still had the sacrifice and the festivals and the shrines, but she had given herself over to the gods of these other nations as well. A pancake cooked on one side, loyalty to Jehovah, but raw on the other, seduced and infatuated with the godless nations around her. Now that kind of spiritual duplicity uh, is repeatedly condemned in the Bible. Do you remember uh, uh, Elijah's great challenge to the people of Israel a hundred years before when he confronted the prophets of Baal? How long, how long will you limp between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And that uh, word limp is translated by the NIV as waver or halt. How long will you halt in the authorized version? A.W. Pink translates it as totter. Kyle and Deleach in their commentary says, how long will you limp on both legs? And the picture is, if you have a limp in one leg, you can't move with vigor or uh, force in any um, uh, direction. But if you have a limp in both legs, you can't move at all. You kind of totter between the two. Well, that's the picture. And Elijah comes with this great challenge. And he says, if, if Baal is God, follow him. Give yourself to him. Abandon yourself to him. Uh, and show no restraint when it comes to him. At least you'll have the titillation of a few nerve endings before you sink into hell. But if God, if Yahweh is God, follow him, abandon yourself to him, give all of yourself to him. How long, Elijah cries, is this state of being a half-cooked pancake going to continue? The risen Lord Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, and he says, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to uh, spit you out of my mind. The risen Christ comes to this church and he says, when I see your lukewarmness, you make me want to vomit. You're like a salad that has been left out in the sun or spaghetti bolognese that has been left out in the cold and I take you into my mouth and I immediately want to spew you out. Jesus was never nauseated by the sight of the sinner in his sin. But he is nauseated by the the sight of professing Christians who say they follow him, but only half-heartedly. This half-cooked pancake looks so appealing on one side, golden brown. But on the other, it's raw. And when you bite into it, you want to expel it. 
Now, are you guilty of that kind of duplicity? Is God disappointed with you because your Christianity penetrates only the surface of your life? There is this other side, this hidden side, this dark side, this raw side. Are you unwilling to give all that God demands? To be wholehearted and fully committed to Him? Are you limping after Yahweh on the one hand and limping after the world on the other? Are you following after Christ half-heartedly, one foot in Christ and one foot in the world? I say to you reverently, do you make Christ sick this morning? With an unturned cake, raw on one side. And when the veneer of your skin-deep commitment to God is removed, you have a Christianity that is anemic and penetrates no further than the surface. Is God disappointed with you? His people had a half-hearted commitment to God, a half-lived faith in God, a half-fed hunger for God, and God describes them as a half-baked pancake. Israel followed partially. Israel responded superficially. She was like a morning cloud. Israel lived inconsistently. She was like a hot oven cooking up sins. Israel followed half-heartedly. She was a flat cake not turned. Fourthly, Israel disappointed by God, uh, disappointed God in that she declined unwittingly. The fifth illustration is given in verse 9 of, of chapter 7. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Here is the picture of advancing old age, of declining strength, of weakening powers. But Israel failed to see her decline. She failed to see the sign. She was becoming a spiritual geriatric, and she didn't even know. Her hair is now gray. Does she notice? Not at all. She remains oblivious to her weakening condition. I used to visit a, a lady in, in Bangor, and she used to say to me, uh, there are not many. She was in her 80s, like her mid-80s, and she would say, there are not many of the old people left. They've all died, she said. She didn't realize that she was one of the old people. Israel was like that. She spiritually and morally and politically, politically had lost her strength without even realizing. I used to visit, uh, have a barber in Balamone and he was so slow. You know, if, if you went to him when he was busy, he could get you out in 10 minutes. If you went when he wasn't busy, he would take an hour and he would do one cut and then he would look out the window and he would say, the street's not or the streets are quiet today, or it's not busy today, and, and that kind of thing. But I trusted him, and he, he never showed me the back of my head. And then I, then I went to the barber in, in Bangor, and he cut my hair. And you know the way they hold up the, the mirror to show you the back of your head and the neckline and so on? He held this up, and for the first time I realized I was bald. Because my bald patch is at the back of the head. I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't realize I was losing my hair. And you see, that's one of the great problems with spiritual declension. It kind of creeps up on you. I'm always struck by those words about Samson in Judges 16 when we're told that 
He did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know. How didn't he know? He did not know that the Lord had left him. And I think sometimes that's a strategy of the devil. He doesn't some, always come to us with a blatant temptation, but often in a gradual and unperceptible way, imperceptible way, he, he takes, he steals our hearts from God. I told you before about um, my father loved the, the house um, burning, you know, it was, it was always far, far too hot. And every time I would turn down the thermostat on the boiler, he would turn it back up again. And then I came up with a strategy that I would turn it down incrementally, just a, a few notches uh, per week. Um, and uh, gradually I got the temperature reduced without anybody noticing. And I think that's what Satan does. He comes and he steals our hearts. He lures our hearts from God, but gradually so that we don't even realize that there's a problem. It's interesting in that letter to the church at Laodicea, Christ says, but you did not realize that you are wretched. You did not realize you're wretched. How, how could that be? Because it's so often, uh, so often we decline imperceptibly. Well, what about you? Where, where's your enthusiasm for the work? Where's your heart for evangelism? Where's your burden for the lost? Where's your earnest prayer? Where's your heartfelt response to the Word? Do you even open the Bible from day to day in your home? Where is the sheer joy of worshiping God? Where is the delight in singing His praises? Where's the spiritual sparkle? Where's that, that experience that you had the first time that you broke bread and remembered the suffering of the Lord? Where is, was that feeling? Where is your commitment to the church? It used to be that people were surprised by your absence at the prayer meeting. Now they're surprised at your presence. Could it be? Could it be that you've spiritually declined? You've spiritually weakened? You've spiritually drifted? And you don't even realize. Israel declined unwittingly. She responded superficially. She lived inconsistently. She followed half-heartedly. She declined unwittingly. Israel reacted foolishly. The fifth illustration describes Israel's spiritual, that describes Israel's spiritual condition. And God's disappointed with, uh, disappointment with her is given in verses 11 and 12. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over my net. I will bring them down like birds of heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. As we said last week, Israel was in a state of a political crisis. The big powers of the Middle East were mobilizing themselves for expansion and the peace and prosperity that Israel had known for a number of years uh, was being thrown into jeopardy. God had hoped, it seems, that this international crisis would shake uh, Israel out of her infatuation with idols and call her back to the roots of uh, her faith in Him. But it wasn't so. Despite all of happened, we're told in verse 10, yet they 
do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek Him for all this. The only thing that she could think of doing in response to all this uh, political situation was to play diplomacy with her enemies. And that's what Hosea is saying in verse 11. Israel, he says, is like a, a brainless bird, a frantic bird, a bird of little brain flapping its wings, going to Egypt and then uh, going to, to Assyria, uh, seeking for help. Here she's facing an international crisis, but instead of returning to the Lord, she turns to her enemies for help, and she tries to play one off against the other. And God says, it's all going to backfire. It's all going to be pulled on. I'm going to throw a net over them, and I'm going to pull, them, pull it all down. Now, sometimes when we uh, go through a period perhaps of difficulty in our lives, it's God's way of tapping on a, us on our shoulder and saying, hey, remember me? What about me? Where's your love to me and your loyalty to me? But sometimes our response is just like those brainless birds that we, we look to this solution and that solution rather than to the one who can heal us and can restore us and can bring us back into fellowship with God. So often we'll run to this one and that one rather than the right one, to God himself, in heartfelt repentance and seek his face and return to him. And we wonder why our lives are spiraling out of control, and it's because we have forgotten the God who loved us and the Christ who gave himself for us. We turn to all kinds of solutions, but to the right one our time's away. Israel responded superficially, a morning cloud. Israel lived inconsistently, a hot oven cooking up wickedness. Israel followed half-heartedly, a pancake uh, not turned. Israel declined unwittingly, the creeping of old age. Israel responded foolishly, a brainless bird uh, looking for help with this one and that one, but never the right one. And the sixth and final illustration God uses to describe Israel is found in verse 16. Um, we're told they return but not upward. The NIV says they return but not to the Most High. They return but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. They, 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 they return. They realize that they have a problem, but, but they turn to these other nations and they don't turn to God. And they're like a, a faulty bow. The idea of a twisted bow or a warped bow. It's a faulty weapon. It's an unstable weapon. It's a, a dangerous weapon. And I, I, I think the point there that's being made is that Israel's going to seek her help in Assyria and, and that's going to backfire and wound them permanently. Because these nations, um, uh, Israel was carried into captivity by Assyria never to return. A faulty boat. The Lord's people always have this propensity to shoot themselves and to do themselves harm. You know, was telling me about an illustration she, she read in a book of this family that, that bought a, 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 a pet snake, a tiny python. And they loved that snake, and they fed that snake, and they indulged that snake, and they took that snake out of the, the um, tank and, and played with it, and the children played with it. It was a pet snake. They loved that snake. 
until when the snake was fully grown, it wrapped its, um, itself around uh, their child and strangled him to death. And that's, that's us. We indulge with sin. We live close to the edge. We compromise with the world. We carry on this illicit love affair with the world. We, we find ourselves indulging ourselves sexually, looking at things that we shouldn't look at, cocking up um, uh, schemes like pots on the boil. And then we discover that that very thing that we have indulged ends up strangling us. Are killing us. Lord's people shoot themselves in the foot. A faulty bow, the arrow uh, is shot, but it turns round and it pierces our hearts. And we lose our love and loyalty to Him. What can I do with you, O Israel? Verse 4. Whenever I would heal the sins of of e, uh, whenever I would heal Ephraim, sin is revealed. I long to redeem them, but God's uh, disappointment with Israel, they responded superficially, they lived inconsistently, they followed half-heartedly, they declined unwittingly, they responded foolishly, and they behaved destructively. They ended up destroying themselves. Well, is God disappointed with you this morning? Is He? Is God disappointed with me this morning? Let's examine our hearts in the light of His Word. Amen.